think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 53 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 54th episode. Uh, we are back after a unplanned hiatus, I guess. We were just kind of busy for, for a couple weeks there. Summer happens. Summer happens. You you got your second wedding, traditional among uh, northern Hobbits. Albertans. Uh, people from, from your planet. Yes. Uh, that's all, all done and dusted, all taken care of. So now, you know, it's just... Sitting back and enjoying the summer. Indeed. Well, such, yeah, I mean, enjoying all our lovely storms and 35 degree days. But at least the beer is cheap. That is true. And that takes us, I guess, right into uh, <laughs> what we were going to talk about, which is, of course, uh, how could how could we pass this up, Etienne? It's, it's really like a bit tailor-made for, for this podcast. It's an asinine policy about beer. Like, there we are. That's our That's our beat. I do like alcohol policy. I do find alcohol policy wonderfully fun. So this is really a... Uh, this is you just like getting mad. And op- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mostly. That might be true. That might be true. This provides an outlet for some of that. Um, shall I just kick it off? Go ahead. All right. So in the platform, uh, the PC... Such, such as it was. <laughs> such as it was. There were a few promises made. Um, and one of them was for dollar a bottle, I, I would note, which is interesting because now we're talking about cans of beer, but I guess that's got details that got lost in the shuffle. Um, cans of beer for a dollar. Um, and this wondrous promise was to be delivered by Doug Ford um, by a reduction in the floor pricing. So in 2008, about a decade ago... Exactly a decade ago. Exactly a decade ago. The Liberals under Dalton McGinty... Raised the floor price of beer from a dollar to a dollar six, um, and I believe they pegged it to inflation, um, which has re- I think it was inflation. I'm not sure. It could be another form of escalator, um, but the government, uh, the Ontario government's backgrounder, said that now the floor price for a can of beer is a dollar twenty-five, and this the minimum price. What did I say? You just said the price. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the the floor. The yeah. floor price for a can of beer is a dollar twenty-five. Um, this resulted in so this has now been changed or is in the process of being changed um, by the Ford government to announce this this week with the completion, the ticking of one of the first boxes of their platform uh, being the dollar beer box. Um, We'll dive into the details in a minute, um, but suffice it to say, this has been eating up a disproportionate amount of media attention, amount of the public imagination, amount of the social media discourse yeah. for how consequential this policy is. Yes, which is not very at the end of the day. Um, and, and to do sort of the high-level political analysis first, I would say that Ford has 100% won this. I think... People will expect that the price of beer will drop dramatically um, based on, you know, reading the headlines and media coverage superficially. And they'll think he's done something great for them while never actually running into a buck of beer in the wild. Yeah, or perhaps one or two. Or perhaps one or two in a very brief amount of time with the media focus around... Yeah. Um... It, but I would know. No, I mean, like, really, this is this is a classic Ford does Ford thing, like that we saw all the time in Toronto when his brother was mayor, 
uh, where it's they're very good, and this is like the Trump thing too. And I, I kind of think a lot of these comparisons are specious, but I do think that they're both guys who have a very good understanding of what makes media tick and what makes people pay attention. Uh, and like that's I think certainly been proven over the last week here with this policy. So. As I've been reading through the discussion, the debate around the Buckabeer policy, several several things strike me. Um, first, critics of the policy tend to be confused about the impact on government revenue. Yeah. So yes, go ahead with yours, and I have a follow up take on this. Um, so th- this is one that was essentially driving me insane in Twitter. Um, actually, this is a topic we should talk about, the basic minimum income um, pilot project. Um, but they were saying, essentially, oh, we're getting buck a beer in place of OHIP Plus. Sure. Or in place of this pilot. Yeah. Where the reality is, putting aside whatever is going to happen in terms of you know promotional bonuses at the LCBO, this isn't a subsidy program. It's not costing the government anything. Maybe a few dollars in lost revenue through the LCBO. Who, who knows? That's hard to say. But it seems like it won't even be remotely on par with any of the, uh, the programs people are making comparisons to. Yeah. So I think that a lot of that chatter from the progressive side of the spectrum, I, I mean, it obviously serves their political agenda, but I thought it made public discourse worse off and made us... Um, as a populist, less able to critically evaluate policies based on facts rather than sort of a smokescreen of what? I think, yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. I do think that a lot of this was simply people misunderstanding what the policy was actually doing. And I think a lot of it is because the comms around it were unclear, right? At first, like the CBC article that was like announcing the announcement, right, mentioned that there was going to be incentives for brewers to lower their their beer to a buck, which I think a reasonable observer used to seeing the word incentives in a government context would think that's either going to be tax breaks, some sort of direct subsidy, like something along those lines. And I think like when you look at this juxtaposed to the, like leaving aside the basic income pilot, which I think had its difficulties and whatever, uh, the reversal of the planned hikes to uh, Ontario Works and ODSP that were going to go up 3% and are now going up 1.5. So effectively a cut in real terms when you look at inflation. It, and these are not generous programs. ODSP is like $800 a month. Like, after you rent somewhere on ODSP, like, where are you buying food from, right? Like, and this is for people who aren't able to work. So I think it, it was a very heartless kind of cut, and I think people are right to be angry. I think, especially given the context of how confused the communications around this policy were, I think it's, like, fair for people to sort of lash out, even if ultimately they kind of... So here's what I think happened with this. I think they saw this line of attack and said, shit, I don't think we can actually do like a real tax break or subsidy or whatever. And then they pull out this at the announcement saying, we're gonna give them free advertising, which as you say, the, the like actual revenue impact is going to be fairly marginal. And then they're gonna say the incentive or the challenge is that we're challenging you to lower beer, your price of beer because then people will like you, which seems like sort of lines written at the last minute because something had to get changed. I don't know, that's what that sounds like to me. So I, I agree with what you're saying that people should keep their criticisms fact-based, and I think that's like a reasonable expectation on the part of, of left-wing people in this province. I do think that there was like ample reason to believe that this did involve some kind of subsidy or tax break, because that's what they were telegraphing the entire time. 
So, one, you're, I, I disagree with your conspiracy there as to whether or not <laughs> the uh, the nature of the announcement changed last minute. I, I don't think that that is the I don't case. think it's last, I, last I, minute. I don't think someone came up with like a sticky note like when he was at the podium and was like, by the way, don't say this. No, I think no, it's like even they had to change direction at some point here. Or they just hadn't really thought it through and then were like... Uh, okay, we need to sort of like have something here. I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think the evidence for a change is is presented in the facts. Um, period. Um, I, I would challenge your timeline of events pretty heavily on that. I, mean, I think the timeline is pretty solid. I think you just disagree that it was like, no, no, prompted but a change. No, I, I don't. Like, think <laughs> I don't think your timeline is that solid. Um, you referred to the CBC article. Yeah, which was, I think, earlier this week. Yes. Yeah, and that was coming on the heels of last week where they got criticized pretty roundly. So the CBC, the initial, so the initial release here was Doug Ford's, as, as far as I know, was Doug Ford's video on uh, Twitter and yeah, other, other social media forums. which was late last week. Which was late last week, and it had sort of the, the core of the announcement in it. We're going to buck a beer. Yeah. The... Or the speculation over subsidies, and so that video launched the public conversation on Twitter. Yeah. The speculation over subsidies didn't come until the essentially the pre-leak of the announcement, sort of in the yeah. day or so, the day or yeah. two before the announcement, and that's where the word incentive, as far yes. as I know, was first dropped. Yeah, which was in that CBC. And case. that the conversation around. Um, conflating OHIP plot re revenue and this announcement was already well underway before there was any conversation. Because in my mind, I made a distinct note of this because I was hammering people on Twitter for this conflation. Right, and then this And then I up. saw the mention of yeah. incentives, and I was sort of smacking myself in the head. <laughs> like, oh, my God. No, okay, that's fair. That's fair. I think, but like, yeah, I think people probably assumed that i guess she spoke to people who like on facebook and whatever who were like so what does this actually mean like like what's going on here and i think a lot of people like didn't bother to ask and just assumed that it was going to be a tax break so that's fair i think like there people should have you know read the fine print more and figured out exactly what was going on here i do think that like post that announcement there was like a lot of confusion i think i was like well I've, i don't see how they're gonna pull this one out because like it's seem the mechanics of this seem very difficult but then they sort of yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't really know how to characterize the, this. Like, f like, it just seems so like last minute and sloppy as an idea. What the, the like giving free advertising and like shelf space to like bucket beer promotions and like it just it's so rinky dink and like it, like why do they even bother? Like, see, why would they mention incentives if like it just it blows my mind? See, you say that actually, I, I will give some credit. I think it's actually reasonably creative. Well, it's creative, um, but it's like, it, like, what problem does it solve except for they had to come up with some kind of incentive? That's it. It's, <laughs> it's, like, it's creating further incentives because I, I think there should be, uh, rightfully so, a genuine concern that no one is going to take them up on this offer. Yeah, well, I mean, they sort of lined their ducks in a row, uh, yeah, in a row ahead on that with one brewery at least. Yes. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about Barley Days for just a minute here. Yeah. Um, so Barley Days is a brewery in uh, Prince Edward County. Yes. Um, the riding of Todd Smith, um, also riding I'm very familiar with. Um, and in Doug Ford's original video, I actually, I actually took note of this because I'm familiar with Barley Days, is uh, there's a like one second clip it of a Barley Days glass being filled up. 
In the original video before. Yeah. And then the announcement was made at Barley Days, and Barley Days is, uh, to date, as far as I know, the only one to, the only brewery to take them up on this um, on this challenge, yes. so to speak. Well, um, they had the announcement at the brewery. And, and, like and of course, they had it there, and I think they called it Loon Lager, um, which, which this, this isn't an unimportant fact, I would say, that if... I, I haven't gone to the brewery and had a loon lager since then, but if they were already brewing um, this loon lager and already had the labels made and everything, like they've been, they've been tipped off on this for uh, which is weird for <laughs> you know a good while, a few yeah. weeks lead time at least. So they've obviously been a stakeholder that's been cooperating closely with the government. Yeah. and it's interesting to note also that the a lot of the sort of craft brewing community in Ontario is really not thrilled about it. Yes. Like, I don't, like, I, we've discussed this previously, and I don't think it substantially affects their, their bottom line either, like, either way. I do think that they find it insulting. It seems to be, like, the, the consensus I'm getting just from, like, their communications on it. Like, Dominion City, one of our favorite breweries, is doing a beer called Bucket Beer, which is a Blondale, uh, and the proceeds from that will go to support refugees, which is, you know, given their announcements on, uh, you know, lacking or stopping cooperating with the federal government on asylum seekers is obviously like that. There's a intention there, uh, coincidentally or not coincidentally, I guess the uh, some of the founders of Dominion City are former political staffers themselves, so I think they they get the comms around this. Great Lakes Brewing was pretty outspoken as well. Great Lakes, um, our Raspberry Uber home, home uh, Nickelbrook, Raspberry of Uber Nickelbrook, yeah. many many of the Ontario breweries. Yeah, um, there's increasingly collections. Uh, of bre- of microbreweries. So the question is, I mean, this was never targeted at craft brewers, no. right? Even even though the example that uh, the government's holding up is a craft brewer, uh, Barley Days. The the question is, will there be a macro logger um, from a major? Excuse me, one minute. <coughs> you got the live sneeze there, folks. Oof. That's good stuff. Um, so will will a macro logger? I think this is the big question. From a major company, be set at a dollar beer over a significant amount. Yeah, of like time. a Coors, PBR, Bud, whatever, like one of those. So I spent some tra- time trawling the uh, uh, beer store website, and the cheapest beer I could come up with is somewhere in the range of a buck forty to a buck sixty. Okay, which is. For those at home, substantially higher than a dollar by like 40, 50%. <laughs> yeah, so that seems tough to cut down that margin, yes. So let, let me point out two different things here that are interesting. Um, the first is I'm talking about the beer store, and I'm talking about the beer store very deliberately because the beer store is the only one that sells cases of 24. Yeah. Um, for those who don't live in Ontario, there's some sort of rules and guidelines that goddamn nanny state <laughs> that the LCBO can't sell beer, nor can grocery stores for that matter, uh, can't sell beer in volumes of greater than six or four can packages. Um, so when we're talking about beer at its cheapest, like with you know a dollar sixty PBR, that's for a two four of PBR. Yeah. Um, which you find at the beer store and do not find at the LCBO. Indeed. So the incentives that the government are providing are through the LCBO, right? Which, which typically can't. sells beers in singles or six packs, yeah, rather than having volume discounts. Um, so so the, that's this is sort just... of a weird wrinkle. 
So not only are you now talking about not selling the volume, you're not getting the benefit of volume, um, even though they're selling at 40 to 60% yeah. over that price, on volume sales, yeah. now it's on singles or six packs with you know markedly less volume at a yeah. substantially so cheaper price. So basically what this comes down to is that if you're a brewery, uh, and you want to get some free advertising, you run a small loss leader product, uh, a, a buck of beer that brings a lot of attention. Because I've never heard of Bartley Days, so congratulations. Now, lots of people have heard of them. Uh, and I drink a lot of beer and a lot of craft beer. They're a, they're usually, I, I usually know a lot of the craft beers. They are so. periodically available at the Sobeys. I'm the probably not going to bother, to be honest with you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, <gasps> but, yeah, no, I think like, I think this is basically what this is. is it's going to be a promotion where you get a little bit of exposure on the government dime. Uh, and in exchange, you lose a bit of money on the cans you sell at a dollar. And there you go. That's probably going to be the extent of it. Yes, yeah. but like, <laughs> so this we're talking about marketing budgets now rather than long term. No, for sure. Like, this is totally um, like I think we we've gone out of our way to stress how not much of a policy this is, while nevertheless devoting seventeen minutes to it so far in this <laughs> podcast, uh, which is very us. Uh, so I think you know we'll, we'll if people are tearing their hair out, I understand this is stupid, and we're intended to talk about it, and we're doing we're doing the work of the Ford government for it here. But so let's actually bridge to talk about perhaps some more interesting resting besides the alcohol um, <laughs> so we're not actually leaving the beer of, thing. of the of the conversation here okay um, go ahead so actually let me tackle the free market argument very quickly first boo um, so the free market side because even within conservative circles this proving contentious obviously I have a different view on this than other conservatives who are more eagerly promoting uh, the policy um, is this you know more free market? Is this increasing competition? Uh, I mean, there, okay. To be fair, except in craft brewing, in the ma- in the macro market, which is most beer, there is like no competition. Like everything is owned by InBev, Anheuser Busch, or Sapporo Sleeman. So that's true. There's a couple large macro um, brewers in Canada. Yes. Um, there, there are three, and they're like international. No, no, no. That that, like all the beer. No, that's not who I'm talking about. Okay, which ones are you talking there about? There are. There's uh, Minhas Brewing, I think it's called. They produce boxer beer and oh, others. Okay. Um, the producers of, you know, like Moosehead. Moosehead's independent. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's my point. Moosehead I'm, and I'm Alpine about, Lager. I'm talking about some of the oh, large. Oh, okay, Canadian ones. Okay, some sure. of the large Canadian, uh, let's call them value beer producers. Um, there's one in Ontario, I think it's called Brick Brewing or Brick something. They produce, you okay. know, Canadian something ale. I, I didn't grow up. Oh, 16 on the prayer. My, my, my university years were not spent drinking value loggers in Ontario, no. so I'm more familiar with the Alberta value logger market. Do you guys have that uh, Great Western out there, whatever it's called? Mm. Oh, 16, you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. No, what you're okay, it's Saskatchewan, maybe. I don't Boxer, know. Lucky Logger. Uh, we got. Yeah. We were drinking President's Choice Honey Brown. Oh. It's actually not that. I don't remember it being. I was horrible. thinking of Sleeman Honey Brown. That was a bad beer. But, uh, yeah, President's Choice Honey Brown was, like, the good, you know, you're getting a flavorful beer when you're drinking the President's, President's Choice, Choice Honey Brown. I mean, it is the choice of the president. Um, anyways, to uh, to wrap up this conversation very quickly, I'm, I'm not sure I entirely made the point I wanted to yet. Um, it was just to say, this isn't really, you know, throwing it open to the winds of the free market, as I think um, some people would have you believe. We're still talking about a floor price of 25% less, not... 
no floor price. Yes. A floor price that no one sells at anyway. It is only for cans. It's not for draft. Um, there's still minimum pricing on draft alcohol. Still or bottle deposits. Yeah, like on and on and on it goes. <laughs> asterisk, 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 asterisk. Um, <laughs> so, like, again, it sort of returns to this isn't a grand uh, change in policy to introduce more free market principles to yes. Ontario. However, one thing that might actually do that, that the Ford government is considering and has uh, spoken in favor of, and that I am sharply in favor of, is alcohol in convenience stores yeah. and grocery stores. I mean, this is the case, I think, in most other provinces that you can do this, or at least, like, population-wise, most other places in the country, because S- Quebec does it. So, uh, increasingly. Alberta obviously does it. I don't know if BC does. Um, uh, who cares? It's BC. They do things differently out there. Um, but at any rate, it's like this is not unheard of. Like, Quebec does it, and it has the sky has not fallen in. I actually looked at, like, people written in with public health concerns about this and i looked into it quebec's incidences of alcohol related health issues are not substantially different for those of ontario despite having alcohol and beer and wine etc in dépanneurs, corner stores grocery stores etc like it's just not a huge difference yeah um so that doesn't seem to explain like a public health thing i don't think is really compelling to me unless i see better evidence so i have no real problem with it but I don't know. Yes. So, I mean, that's step number one. And step number two is coming out of the uh, uh, Council of the Fed, the Premier's meeting uh, last month. One of the big um, points was alcohol liberalization across provincial borders. Post-Como. Um, Post-Como decision. And there's actually going to be a Fed prov sit down with the Premier's and the Prime Minister at Council of the uh, First Minister's meeting. Wait. Yes, First Minister's meeting. First Minister's yeah. meeting. Um, in fall where they're specifically going to talk alcohol liberalization. Sweet. And so the provinces that are against alcohol liberalization tend to be some of the northern well, the northern yeah. territories um, because they have you know slightly different concerns yeah, than and other provinces. They have much more of a legitimate public health concern I think there than they do. As, as well as some of the Atlantic provinces. Yeah, there I don't really get it to be honest. Um, <laughs> but with uh, an increasing amount of conservatives at the helm, uh, Manitoba, for instance, uh, eventually Alberta, uh, we'll Saskatchewan, see. Ontario, <laughs> Quebec too. Uh, Quebec is coming up. Well, They're, I mean, Quebec already it, does it, have it, a center right government. It won't yes. be in time for that meeting, but yeah, they have a reasonably center right government. This is increasingly looking like a possibility of proper alcohol uh, deregulation between provinces. Um, So that's and and they made some token efforts towards that um, at the last meeting. So okay, that's on that's on the table. That's something to look forward to. So in more consequential things that like probably matter to more people at the end of the day, there's also the the Ford government to stay in Ontario for right now. Uh, the Ford government's announcement of a substantial change to how Toronto's municipal government will work in terms of its city council, where they're slashing um, the size from, I think, 47 down to 25. Um, yeah, it's down to 25. Okay. I think it's currently 47. It uh, matches the... Uh, the provincial and federal boundaries. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is a big change, which normally when you make these kinds of changes is something you, you talk to the city about, you see if there's any appetite for it, uh, and then you, you kind of roll it out for the next election. So... That's not what's happened here. Uh, instead, what they've done is drop it on the city. There's indications he may have mentioned it to John Tory or had a conversation with him about it, but certainly not a public one before council or before anyone else, the public, etc. 
Um, and they've announced that this will take effect before the election that is happening in just about a month and a half now, approximately, which is a bit nuts. Uh, that's not typically how you do things. Uh, you don't typically pull the rug on people who've you know committed time, money, leave, that kind of thing to go sure. run, run for office. It's pretty disrespectful. Um, it has not proven enormously popular. Uh, there was a poll the other day that had, I think, like roughly 70% of people either thinking they should wait or withdraw it entirely. And like before to, to get into the merits, like I personally like don't know if the best size for the city council of Toronto is 47 or 25. Um, is, and like it doesn't especially matter to me. I don't live there, so whatever. It's 32, Laurent. <laughs> it's 32, just somewhere in between. The truth is always in the middle. Um, it's 32 exactly. But the, the point I wanted to make with that is is like for like obviously it's it's bad. I mean it's just not how you typically run a government. But I think that speaks to a both a concern and a line that a lot of people had in response to that concern. And the concern was that Doug Ford would govern like an out of control guy who doesn't really have a clear idea what he's doing and doesn't really respect any of the kind of like norms or procedures around how a premier typically wields their power and a lot of people saying well you know he's got all these smart people around him like he's caroline Mulroney, christine elliott victor deli like all these level heads at the sort of senior members of cabinet it'll be okay i think what he's shown so far is that those people have no real interest in acting as a meaningful check uh if like I don't know, like, maybe there, maybe he was like, we're just going to, like, abolish the city of Toronto, and they, they pulled back on that. I don't know. Seems unlikely. So that was something people talked a lot. And once again, I hate to bring up the Trump comparison because I think it's often lazy. This is something people said a lot about him, too, was that, oh, well, you know, he'll appoint a cabinet. He's going to have, you know, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and it's all going to be fine. You know, he'll mature in the office. And that, like, obviously just has not happened. And I think that's something... If you're, like, a guy or a woman in your, your 40s or 50s, and you're pretty, like, you're not going to dramatically change, I think, is the lesson of the last couple of years. Office, elected office does not fundamentally change people. You're still going to be the same asshole if you're already an asshole to begin with. So I, I just heard that a lot from people, and it just does not seem to have panned out in the slightest. So with all of about 72 hours spent in Toronto, I'm not, I'm not going to take too much time to pontificate on uh, my views on Toronto City Council or the numbers or any of that. No, and like once again, I think um, it's peripheral to the like, but, central issue here. But let me, let me discuss one of your points in there. And it's the point of how, how much has cabinet checked um, forward here. And I think, um, I think sort of two things come to mind. The first is, one, none of this checking, I mean, the, the when it comes to the inter-party relationships, particularly of a premier and his cabinet, right? In, intra-party. Inter, yes, yeah. intra. Uh, between a premier and his cabinet, all of that checking goes on behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, no, like, I get that, right? It's the same with caucus, like, it's... it's not it's in camera like you're never going to hear it so i i recognize that there's a significant challenge function that is outside the public eye and we'll discuss this in a couple of weeks when we discuss ian brody's book uh, at it's, the center of government it is almost as if ian brody discusses yes. this significantly he in does his book. and like i recognize that um and then the second thing i would say is also just how soon this happened into his uh tenure yes that even if you know, Marooney was sharply, sharply opposed to this action. That it would be very hard for her in her position as literally setting up her office yeah. 
just getting yeah. on her ground running, yes. feeling out the roles and responsibilities. Yes, and at the same... To, to be too, too assertive. Sure. I, I think there's somewhat of an expectation, especially, especially with her, um, but less so for some of the other people you named, um, that it takes some time for these individuals to get their feet under them. Yep. Well, yeah, especially because she has no like prior experience. No, and it, it's especially like, when it comes to challenging the boss. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, if this were a move that would happen, um, that had happened two to three years into uh, his premiership, I think it might be different, and I think more people would be inclined. Yeah. Um, but based on the fact that this is literally like as as the election paint is drying. Yeah. Um, it changes the dynamics, and it makes it a very hard dynamic for anyone to fight back against. If the premier yeah. is, you know. Yeah. Well, okay. Th- two points on that. The first, first is like I think there, there's something to what you're saying. I, I agree. Like I think people coming in as ministers, like you're f- always at an information disadvantage with the boss. I think like to the premier in the central office. I think that's that's always the case, especially when you you're just starting and you're fairly new to politics. Though Carolyn Mulroney's not the person on whom whose shoulders this decision rests sure. unilaterally. They have a local government person too who was a long-time PC uh, MPP, so I thought more him, I think, would be the person. Anyway, doesn't Damn really you, unnamed minister. I forget who this is, yeah. Um, no, but I think, like, the... Uh, it. You're right, like, this is... It's an early time to do this, and weirdly timed, given that this is the election two months away, but that's precisely the problem, right? Is that, like, clearly there's been so little thought into this, and that he either did it over cabinet's objections or didn't bother to run it by anyone which is like for people who have to run again in toronto is like well geez buddy like you know so yeah there were neither neither of these two options makes the premier look like someone who carefully thinks through decisions before making them no i i think that's fair and there were some reporting um that unnamed either staff or elected officials had tried to talk him down and thought they'd won that argument (laughs) geez that's brutal and then uh you know it still happened anyways yeah um so so such is the case but uh that's about all i have to say on that fair enough i think you've you've defended it adequately uh, as much as is possible. Yes. So we've adequate defense. There, there are a couple of elections coming and going here uh, that we want to get on the radar. Uh, the first is the AFN National Chief Election, the Assembly of First Nations. Yep. Um, so the AFN, for those of you who don't know, which is probably not very many of you, is the sort of national organization of First Nations chiefs um, and and councils as well, typically uh, to some extent. So every couple of years, they elect a national chief who acts as kind of the voice on on national issues. Currently, that's Perry Belgard, who is from Saskatchewan, um, chief out there. I do not remember his nation, unfortunately. Do you happen to? No? Okay. it's That's fine. Um, so uh, National Chief Belgard has been uh, controversial on environmental issues. Uh, he's acquired an unflattering nickname to that effect, uh, Pipeline Perry. Uh, from people who are more critical of... Unflattering? Unflattering. Mark? Yeah, well, I suppose it depends on where you're coming from. Uh, it's not meant to be flattering, I think <laughs> is probably a fair way to put it. Um, and so he was up for re-election, ran against uh, Sheila North, who is uh, from northern Manitoba, uh, considered a bit more progressive, up and coming, reasonably young. Uh, she will probably run again. She did not win. Spoiler alert, Perry Bellegarde is re-elected as national chief. Uh, there was also some concern over uh, Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs, who is present at the meeting, and there, one of the candidates, Russ Diabo, who uh, is a Mohawk from Akrasosne in uh, sort of Quebec, Ontario, uh, New York state border area. 
um, longtime policy analyst uh, and a big proponent of more decentralization to First Nations. One of the more outspoken candidates in the race. Yes, very much so. Um, good guy, but yeah, he was uh, he did not win. Uh, and he alleged that uh, Carolyn Bennett, well, alleged, I mean, they confirmed this, that Carolyn Bennett was going in to talk to Chief's caucuses in the morning uh, before the vote. Bennett confirms that that was indeed the case. So she maintains she was invited. Uh, that does actually seem to be the case. The Alberta caucus of, of Chiefs confirmed that they had invited her. That said, uh, and like I don't want to, like, you know, crap on her too much here. I think, like, if you're invited, you're invited, and that's that. Personally, if I were the Federal Ministry of Indigenous Affairs, this is exactly the kind of thing I would stay away from on the day of a vote. Uh, I think there, there's a long history of Canada intervening in First Nations elections to get the result they want, uh, whether it's you know, abolishing chiefs and councils and then reinstituting them through basically like INAC kind of like decree has happened before. Uh, it's a look you want to avoid, especially right now when relationships over pipelines and other issues are fairly tense. I think it's a, and Carolyn Bennett, frankly, is not seen as a strong performer in her role. So it's that, but it's also worth noting that uh, Perry is seen as too close to, the, to liberals, yes. the liberals. I believe it was in they they were each given all the uh, leadership candidates were given uh, half hour remarks to make, and in, I believe it was in Norths. Um, that she said, you know, we need someone who can go to Ottawa without becoming yeah, a member of the government. Yeah, so th- it, was, that, that's, it was better worded than that. That, that is a nuance the, that I, I should have absolutely noted. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. Like, part of the Pipeline Perry package, if you like that alliteration, <laughs> is uh, that he is, yeah, very, very close to, to Ottawa, um, for, for better or worse. And usually people bringing this up, it's for worse. To, to the extent that um, when I was but a young intern in Ottawa, and I was doing a... Uh, a election scenario or an election oh, yeah, simulation, right. let's call it. It's my, when you were at the Conservative Party, right? Yeah. That's that's right. My uh, my riding was uh, Saskatoon West. Uh, in that time, newly newly formed riding. Yes, they had um, abolished the. Uh, for actually, interesting piece of Saskatchewan political history. Uh, Saskatoon and Regina used to have these like big pie slice ridings, where basically you'd have the tip of it in Saskatoon and Regina, and then the rest of it was was very rural. Uh, they abolished that in the 2015 reapportionment and made actual urban writings. So they went from four to three in both cases, but were more purely urban. So in uh, in Saskatoon West, I had to come up with the the um, the likely candidates to run against a conservative candidate of my choosing. I picked some random. Maybe he was a city councilor. Uh, as the conservative, I can't remember. It was remember Randy Donauer. Yeah, it in was. Real, it was in, Randy. Yeah, in real life, that's who it was as well. So congratulations, um, you picked well. It was Randy, and then for the NDP, I picked uh, Ryan Melly, who is currently leader of the Saskatchewan NDP. <laughs> that is actually a pretty good pick, and honestly. For uh, the Liberals, I picked uh, Perry Bellegarde. Wow, well, there you go. Um, Perry went a different way. Randy lost. Did run? Well, yeah. he ran and lost. He, yeah. he obviously didn't follow my instructions. No. Um, and uh, Ryan Melly didn't go for it. He did not. But eventually went into uh, provincial. Yes, and now represents a seat in Saskatoon anyway. Uh, actually, probably with it. Yeah, within the boundaries of Saskatoon West, yeah. uh, which is held federally by um, Sherry Benson of uh-huh. the NDP. There for you go. people wondering. So that's a history of my uh, my intern project. Yeah, well, now, now <laughs> we now we know. Um, so that that's the AFN election. It was a little controversial. I think that's mostly bubbled down. Um, but yeah, it really fell off. Uh, it fell off the map pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, at the actual conference, people like seized the stage and were 
decrying the vote rigging yeah, uh, the, after the first round of um, after the, well, not well, vote, vote rigging, rigging but not, like not sort vote of rigging, but inappropriate closeness. Elect- and sort of, yeah, yeah. Some some, Fiddling, some sharper meddling. words were used, but we'll we'll let those go. Yeah, um, it's important to note too, like the AFN is controversial, even like within First Nations politics, for being too much the voice of chiefs and not enough. I mean, I think Sheila North said exactly this: was that the chiefs for a long time was completely a boys' club, right? Like it used to be the National Indian Brotherhood. Uh, which was, like, explicitly, like, male-exclusive, and that's kind of been a reputation that the AFN has been had trouble shaking, uh, and that it's been too close to Ottawa, too centralized, too much for the chiefs. Uh, so, you know, like any political organization, it's going to have a lot of tensions, and, like, mo- these are politics that most Canadians never hear about, so I think it's, like, First Nations people in Canada have, like, a very fascinating political culture that is fairly distinct that we never hear about and I think like would be interesting to cover more thoroughly sure. uh, so hopefully in the future we can we can do more uh, it'd, be, it'd be kind of fun so which of these other uh, other ongoing elections do you want to talk about you sure talk- so there's a big one that just uh, we got some news today about uh, and that is the Burnaby South by-election. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. And it turns out that leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, will be running in that by-election uh, for the NDP, obviously. Yes. It would be quite a surprise if he'd come out and said, I'm running for the Greens. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he is taking Kennedy Stewart's, uh, I mean, slot. Yes. Um, went today, went to Burnaby, did the whole song and dance, made the announcement. Yeah. If I, Though it had already, like, come out last week. Yeah. So it was a bit strange in that way. It was yeah. pre-leaked, but you used to, I mean, you always have to make the official announcement. Oh, for sure. And, and stand up and take the questions and be a oh, little yeah. more transparent. Yeah. Um, so he basically said that he, you know, he was in on representing Burnaby, um, and if he won, he would run again, I think. I didn't actually watch the I, announcement, but yeah. I feel like that's what came out of the coverage. Um, which is all very interesting. Um, that's obviously a big commitment to make to essentially move your life in yeah. part to a city that you have no roots in. Mm-hmm. Um, so kudos to him there, but that's often what it takes, especially because he's always been seen as such a Toronto-centric um, individual. I know he has roots in you know Newfoundland and elsewhere Windsor as well. Yeah, um, but no, for sure, like he spent much of his adult his, life his there. adult political yeah. career was really built around Toronto. Is any as any politician, you know, builds their uh, political career around their region, but the politics of Toronto, I think, are so insular that it's more so when you're from a large city like yeah. that. Though um, it's important to say for him, it was like the 905 as well, yeah. in the sense that his seat in the Ontario legislature was Bramley Gormalton, which is now Brampton East. Um, so that, that's what I mean when I say yeah. Toronto. Yeah, but people in Toronto like, see distinction, mm-hmm. and it is important politically. I'm from Alberta. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm just saying for the benefit of other people who are currently tearing their hair out. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's it's a writing that the NDP did not win by a enormous margin in 2015. No. I remember seeing a piece actually just after the election, uh, like, interviewing Kennedy Stewart's team that said, uh, basically, that they realized that, you know, with the national slide in the polls and regional slide in the polls, they had to put all their eggs in the um, advanced voting basket. And basically, like, though they lost election day, uh, their lead in the advance polls was enough that they overcame that and, and pulled ahead. So it was just under 600 votes, um, so let, which is pretty tight for a federal riding of like 125,000 people. That's actually an interesting point, so let's let's dig into that very quickly. Sure. Um, so essentially what that is, is you know when the writ is dropped, um, very shortly thereafter, advance polls um, come available. And so often... 
as a as a way of casting your vote, you know, weeks before actual election day. Yeah. So this is a strategy of campaigns is to push people to vote in advance. Because if they're supporting you now, they can't change their mind yes. come election day. Well, and also it, it frees you up to get the much bigger pool on election day. So you want to get your most motivated people out, if at all possible, on the advance votes. Because you don't have to worry about them as much. They're already motivated. And then you, their names are checked off on the electoral list that you get for the election. You know they've already voted. You don't have to worry about it. That's yeah. many, many votes in the bank, basically. And you can worry about going after your more marginal people that are going to require more help. So yeah. it's, it's a time-tested strategy. And especially... If you feel that there's a slide going against you, you want to lock in as many people as you can early on. Yeah, that's essentially it. And yeah, a lot of people, I mean, it's just, I, I do find it fascinating that, like, especially in federal elections, advance polls are incredibly easy to do. Um, they're not inconvenient in really any way, but that more people don't actually. I think basically the share of people doing advance voting or voting at the returning office goes up every election. Yeah. Pretty and, reliably. And I think it should because people it's, are like, oh, I, I don't know if I'll be able to vote on voting day. I have this going on or I have this. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> so I just gave a channel look because he didn't vote in the Ontario provincial election because he was going to be gone on voting day. <laughs> I had a wedding to plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said it was, it's so convenient, it was Etienne. weeks before. It's so convenient. No, but honestly... <laughs> I, I didn't really look into the provincial one. <laughs> you really um, blundered right into that, <laughs> But I do believe the provincial advance polls are more limited than the federal ones. The federal ones are actually pretty wide-ranging in how long they're open for. The provincial ones are less so. The uh, returning office is about six blocks from here, by the That's, way. Yeah, you could have gone literally any day of the red. This, this isn't my home. <laughs> <laughs> You really, you really set yourself up for that. Here we are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, anyway, that's um, Burnaby South. Good luck to, to Mr. Singh. That's gonna be, it's going to be a tough one, but I frankly do think they're going to pull it out. Oh, um, one, last, one last thing I will note here is uh, the history, the history of leaders running in by-elections. Oh, yeah, right, of course. There is a, uh, a tried-and-true history of leaders running in by-elections um, going back, you know, 40, 50 years. And the convention has developed, at least between the liberals and the conservatives, of not running uh, candidates against leaders. Well, strong campaigns. So they'll run a candidate, but it's no. not like... Yeah, usually. No. No candidate. You don't think so? No. I, I know that's been the case for speakers in the past. I have, uh, I have researched okay. this, and essentially in every case, um, obviously this is by-elections, yeah. especially... Sorry, it gets a little more nuanced. By-elections of leaders seeking spots in the House, leaders are, of parties okay. I see. who aren't yet in the House... Um, that generally, between liberals and conservatives, they don't run a candidate against them. Um, the NDP have always, uh, or most, I, I can't say that entirely conclusively, but I believe the NDP have never conformed to this convention. No, I mean, it's it's sort of a, I don't know if this is written down anywhere, but there's an NDP, like, at least imagined policy that you offer people the option of voting for the NDP in every election anywhere that happens. Because the idea, right, is that, like, I mean, this is this goes back to, like, the Tommy Douglas days, where, like, we really strongly considered ourselves, like, a real alternative, right? It was the, sure. the, the white cats and the black cats and the mice. So, like, you don't really need to abide by, by cat civility, 
like you just if you want to give people a choice of voting for mice you give them the choice of voting for mice doesn't matter who the cat is right <laughs> like is the idea so <laughs> but that that's the philosophy the, right so people are like oh the NDP's mean it's like no it's like it's just they believe that there's like a real they have to put the real thing on offer every time but what like, if the black cat is looking out for the mice's best interests no nah, that's, that's this is like oh, this why, thinking is an error Etienne why, why can't a cat govern a mouse no um, yeah, I, and I mean, I, I just wanted to point out that convention, um, sort of a bastardized version of that convention, sort of-ish, happened uh, when Elizabeth May ran against, tried to de-seat, uh, de unseat, unseat to dethrone, whichever. I guess um, in his case it was basically inherited, so yes, more or less a throne. <laughs> Peter McKay from Central Nova. Um, in... 2011, I think. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. Yeah, 2011 fits. Er, no, because she was elected that time. So it would have been 2008. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, in 2008, uh, Elizabeth May has sort of been an electoral wanderer, um, and she, her first big push, and she almost made it, was trying to take down Peter McKay, notable cabinet minister, notable former cabinet minister, in his home riding, and the liberals opted to not run a candidate against her so as to improve her odds. Yes. And to be fair, they were cooperating pretty extensively with the Greens that election anyway. So it yeah. was like broader. That know. was, yeah. Yeah. Famously, like the NDP was like told we were mean because we didn't want Elizabeth May at the debates that election because there was an electoral pact between the Greens and the liberals. <laughs> and we said, we think it's unfair that the liberals get two people at this debate. <laughs> and people were like, that's so mean. And it's like, no, guys, like you don't give them free passes. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Tories so. with bikes anyway, I don't like them. Should it be grits with bikes? Does that make more sense then? The Greens? Yeah. No, they were like, I mean, this has not been true of the Elizabeth May period as much, but like pre her, like a lot of the Greens were really coming out of like PC circles hmm. more than they were liberal or certainly NDP. The party existed before Elizabeth May. It did, yeah. No, it is the Elizabeth May party now. Holy God, it's yeah. hard to imagine. Yeah, back in those ancient days before 2006. Okay, what other uh, what other extraneous elections did we want to touch on? Uh, well, the most extraneous of them all, perhaps, uh, the New Brunswick provincial election, which is happening in late September. Like a large uh, municipality. Yes. Well, I mean, pretty like, large. Like a small municipality. It's like three-quarter million. 700,000. 750, closer to. Yeah. So, like, it's a big municipality, sure, but, like, that's, that's a pretty big municipality. Um, so, yeah, they're having their election. The incumbent liberals are, are obviously running uh, to, to give Brian Gallant a second term as premier. Um, and against them are the PCs, uh, led by Blaine Higgs, who was the former PC premier David Allward's finance minister. Kind of comes from outside of the party establishment, a bit more of an actual uh, right-wing free market kind of guy than your average uh, New Brunswick PC who are more, much more in the sort of, like, maritime, red Tory kind of tradition, at least on fiscal issues. They are pretty socially conservative. Would That's... you call him New Brunswick's Maxim Bernier? No, I wouldn't. Oh. Uh, he has none of the personal flair, uh, <laughs> and is clearly much smarter, so... Um, yeah, no, so he's, uh, he's an interesting guy, Blaine Higgs. Uh, actually, very interestingly, the PCs have kind of absorbed a lot of uh, Dominic Cardi's NDP. So, uh, so right. Yeah, Let's back up. Presume I know nothing about New Brunswick, which you don't. I can, so yeah, I can concede I can presume to, not, that. to not knowing much about. I yeah. don't. I don't believe that was covered in my Alberta social studies courses. Sure. Um, 
what sort of the history in terms of which party is the natural governing party of New Brunswick? I wouldn't say there is one because of the linguistic ethnic religious split in New Brunswick. Uh, you have a French minority that's about 30% of the population, mostly concentrated in the northern half of New Brunswick. And then you have the Anglophone majority, about 60-70%, uh, that's mostly in the south. So like the St. John River Valley. Basically, the further south you go, the more English it gets. And what are the political affiliations of said? So the PCs are groups. mostly English, okay. uh, and the liberals are mostly French. Well, no, that's not fair. The French are mostly liberals. Um, so basically, the key in every election is where does central New Brunswick go? Because the North is pretty much going to be reliably liberal. The South is pretty much going to be reliably conservative, with a couple exceptions. St. John Harbor has often been an NDP stronghold when they've been in the legislature. Um, along with a couple of receipts. So it's basically like, where does Moncton go? Where does the Southeast go? Which is pretty linguistically split. Moncton's very bilingual. Uh, where does kind of the center of the province go? Uh, where does the Quebec border region go? Madawaska. Uh, right now, actually, Madawaska has the PCs, I think their only Francophone MLA, uh, or she may have resigned recently. I can't quite remember, but at any rate, it's, a, it's where Bernard Valcourt is from. Sure. Uh, federal conservative. So it's... It's a region where the conservatives can win, but usually don't. Um, so yeah, basically, how much of how much of Moncton, how much of Madawaska, how much of the center can they really peel? Can they get a couple in St. John? Is usually a test. Uh, the liberals do have a couple right now, so that's that's the tricky thing. Uh, Fredericton usually votes against the government uh, in a second election. However, you've had an odd pattern in New Brunswick the last couple of cycles where the first one-term government. Uh, ever elected in New Brunswick history was Sean Graham's first elected in 2006. The second one-term government ever elected in New Brunswick history was David Allward's first elected in 2010. So we've had two back-to-back one-term governments, um, which is, yeah, like I said, completely anomalous in New Brunswick history. Uh, so who knows? The liberals might lose it. I don't think people consider them to have done a fantastic job. Governing New Brunswick is really hard because it's a region that is just declining because of secular factors that are more or less outside the control of any government uh, in the sense that it's, it's an aging region where a lot of the young people leave elsewhere to go for opportunities. New Brunswick is particularly tough because where Nova Scotia has Halifax uh, and Newfoundland has St. John's, the sort of urban population of New Brunswick is split between three cities that are approximately of equal size. Yeah. yeah, so they're all around like 125, 150,000 people. St. John, um, Fredericton, and Moncton. Sure. So because it's so multipolar, uh, you don't get the kind of like critical mass of like young people and like, you know, investment that you would get in a Halifax or St. John's. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's a tough province to govern. Um, so I do think that the Liberals are beatable. Uh, the Conservatives certainly seem to be playing to win. Like I said, they, they took a lot of the NDP. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, Dominic Carty, who was previously the NDP leader in New Brunswick, left as leader and became Blaine Higgs' chief of staff. Um, he was a, kind of always a Blairite and did not get along well with his party. Um, so that's, that's what happened there. Jennifer McKenzie's NDP. Um, if they win a seat, they'll be happy. Uh, and I think she's running it. Set the bar low. Well, I mean, that's traditionally where you're at with with uh, Atlantic Canadian NDPs. If you win, if you win one, great. If you win more than that, that's beautiful. Nova Scotia, obviously, the exception to this since the '90s, where they've done a really good job of building there. But once again, Halifax makes a huge difference there, uh, where you just don't have the kind of urban critical mass that you have in the other provinces. It's just much tougher. 
Um, so she's running in St. John Harbor. Uh, I think she could win it. Uh, Elizabeth Weir, who was a former leader, held that seat, I think, through three or four elections. So certainly, like, entirely doable. Uh, they did pretty well there in the last provincial election, um, but didn't quite take it. But yeah, no, it's, it's certainly winnable. The Greens currently have a seat in Fredericton South, the leader, David Kuhn. Uh, he almost certainly will get reelected. I would be very surprised to see him unseated. Um, like I said, Fredericton is weird because it's the government town, but usually votes against the government. Um, so I don't know, like New Brunswick is actually super interesting uh, province with like a very interesting political history that involves a lot of like grand attempts to try and fix the province that end in ignominious failure, usually. Uh, Sir Richard Hatfield, famously uh, also called Disco Dick, uh, <laughs> uh, tried the, the Bricklin thing with the cars and that didn't work out. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a complicated province with an interesting history. I actually highly recommend if uh, anyone is very curious about New Brunswick political history and wants to learn more, highly recommend uh, The Right Fight. Uh, by Jacques Poitras, who's a CBC journalist in New Brunswick. It's a fantastic history of the New Brunswick PCs and kind of acts as a good proxy history for New Brunswick political history since the 20s. Uh, Super good. Could not recommend it more highly. I think one of the best books of Canadian political history ever written. Uh, Just it's stupendously good and like well-researched. He also wrote a book called Irving versus Irving, which is about the Irving family. Um, who I have not mentioned at all and usually factor into my complaints <laughs> about New Brunswick politics, so I'll, I'll leave that for now, but uh, about their, their sort of family business and history, which I have not read, but I've heard very good things about, so I uh, highly recommend that as well. You will have to lend me that first book. Um, let's leave... I have it as a Kindle, a Kindle book, unfortunately. So. You'll, you'll have to lend me your Kindle. <laughs> you know, just tough, and it takes me a long time to read. I'm going to have it for months. <laughs> Um, let's leave New Brunswick there because that is. I more, could talk, I could literally talk about that New Brunswick is more politics than I day. ever wanted to know about New Brunswick. It's like me diving into Fort McMurray municipal politics and it's a little the, bit the, the history of the plastic bag ban. <laughs> it's a little bit bigger, but less consequential. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that'll probably. I mean, there was like some other stuff that happened. Uh, there was the Saudi thing. Oh yes, a, a big blow up there where Saudi threatened to do nine eleven on us. Uh, Oof. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> And not only that, the uh, propaganda going on on the television, apparently they say that 75% of our... Uh, Inmates are our, getting murdered. Our prisoners <laughs> are killed before they ever make the No, I mean, okay, I, I do love this. So, so for anyone who has been under a rock for the last couple of days, the, the Saudis, after a, a tweet that was mildly critical of, like, flogging, you know, human rights activists... Uh, um, just imprisoning here, but... Just imprisoning, okay, sorry. Yeah. Um... Well, I don't know. How, what's their prisoner death rate like? <laughs> That's what people were joking. They were joking. They were misreading the statistics about those. Sure, sure they were. Um, yeah, so at any rate, Canada, the, the Canada Foreign Policy Twitter account was like, we condemn, or like, we, we think it's bad that these people are being imprisoned. And Saudi Arabia just like melted down, basically, and, and re- like declared our ambassador persona non grata. And have since then recalled all Saudi students or, like, trying to place them elsewhere. Recalling patients now, like, medical patients from <laughs> Canadian hospitals. Okay, so let me... Directing the central bank and, around, like, the Saudi Arabia to, like, dump pension funds assets. to dump assets, which is hysterical. Um, let, uh, let me yeah. make a few points on this. There's obviously been a ton of analysis done um, about, you know, the domestic situation in Saudi Arabia's positioning itself here. Well, the ongoing revolution led by a charismatic young prince. <laughs> and how, uh, how a lot of this really doesn't have to do with Canada. Oh, God, no. Yeah. There's, there's some other takes about how 
Yeah, uh, people you, about you, how it does have to do with Canada. They Canada get like was, fifteen of these tweets a week. Was was bad on Twitter. Um, there's actually a precedent here. Um, if I were a better podcaster, I would have it in front of me to quote, but I'm just gonna sort of go off the cuff. I think it was Finland. Sure, that sounds possible. Um, I was in a comparable situation like three or four years ago, um, but it was you know the ambassador was expelled. And that was it. Yeah. Had it initially stopped with the with the ambassador being expelled, like that is basically a slap on the wrist. Like it is virtually nothing in the diplomatic sphere. I know. Yeah. I know some like diehard uh, foreign policy types will be like, "Oh no, the the ambassador leaving is such a big deal." I know, like but it's, foreign it's, policy people. It is. It is not. Foreign policy people pretend this stuff matters to justify <laughs> their own jobs. Like that's one hundred percent. The foreign policy thing is a complete grift. <laughs> You didn't want me to get into this, but I said I would. <laughs> um, so all, all of this goes back to... So one of the one of the lines of criticism of the government has been twiplomacy, which is a word that if I ever oh. say again, feel free to smack me. Yeah. Um, I hate it. Um, Not Twitterplomacy? No, it's... Twiplomacy? We, we have to portmanteau oh. those two words That's together. That's one of the worst portmanteaus I've ever heard. Twiplomacy. Um, once, once went to a panel discussion on diplomacy, and it was as awful as you can imagine. Buddy, you're you're cruising for for a snack in here. <laughs> you said it like three times. <laughs> um, I don't find that a compelling argument. Um, I so the two things I learned is one that a lot of our international allies seem to be spineless right now. Shocker. Um, beginning with the United States, and it looks like the United States may have had some role in this, or it was cleared with the United States before Saudi Arabia went to went to town on us, um, which seems plausible because you know, they don't do any, they don't take a shit without the U.S.'s permission. So yes, yeah. Um, unfortunately, there's some people, uh, a particular University of Ottawa professor, who instead was advancing this conspiracy theory that Harper. Oh God! Um, yeah, conspired with John Bolton to do this to sabotage Trudeau, which is the, this was like this was a conspiracy theory I had to call the Walrus and the Carpenter. <laughs> but who was Woo! the Walrus? I think it's an easy guess. <laughs> um, just insane, especially if you didn't follow the reporting of Harper going to uh, Washington. Well, he was initially reported to have. Uh, been planning a meeting with John Bolton. He is reported to have only met with Larry Kudlow. Yes. Who um, does not make Saudi Arabia's <laughs> foreign policy decisions as far as we know. No, which makes that a theory rather irresponsible and uh, yes. horrible before, to advance. Before we wrap up on, on Saudi, I just want to note the hilarity of the Saudi Twitter troll army. Yeah. It's so good. So I, I alluded to this when we started talking about it. There was an infographic. I, I, just, I don't really... It's not really an infographic. It was just a picture, I guess, of, like, if you meddle with us, you won't like what you find. And it was a shot of an Air Canada jet flying towards the CN Tower, which I was like, oh, okay, it's the ambassador going back through Pearson. I get it. But, like, obviously the visual... Is that, is that what you actually thought? Because that's what well, they I mean, said. No, I, that never crossed the literal, my mind. The literal first thing I thought it was, was, oh, the Saudis are doing 9-11 again. <laughs> and the second thing was like, oh, okay, I see what they're going for here, but, like, wow, what a poor choice of imagery. <laughs> so, there has been a lot of this. Uh, I appreciated that you retweeted the uh, the wrong Quebec flag that they yes, were supporting. Yes, the city of Quebec. <laughs> like, so, yeah, some of their tweets featured the city of Quebec's flag rather than the province of Quebec's Which flag. Which are very trying, different. 
very from, different. Trying to push like sovereign, Quebec independence, yes. But like Quebec independence coming from Saudi Twitter accounts it's creates like, a hilarious juxtaposition. Well, especially because Quebec, Quebec, known for its love of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> that is like. It just seems like they got the C list of Twitter trolls. Oh, for sure. Rather than like the Russian trolls who like you know pretend to be um, American citizens in support of divisive causes, yeah. rather than Saudi citizens in support of divisive causes in yeah. Canada. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, which com- comes which across- is like well, this doesn't really <laughs> seem like well, because the whole thing was like because we're intervening in their internal affairs, they're intervening in ours, and it's like it's like they just say, well, here are some things that are some social problems in your country, and you're like. Yeah, but, you know, if we talk about them here, we don't get, like, our hands cut off. So, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, our floggings or beheadings or hangings as, as happened to, to many people. The, uh, the number one thing I learned through this entire conversation um, was how heavily invested the Saudis have been in Canadian medical schools over the past, oh, a lot, yeah. like, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, this podcast would have had a very short run if we were based in Saudi Arabia. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a little different, a little bit different flavor. Um, How revolutionary is our young new prince? <laughs> we sit sure. down with Tom Friedman to discuss. Uh, well, we'll see it. We'll see how it goes. We're we're sitting tight for now. Um, to sum it all up, it's a mess. Yes. Um, it seems to be rapidly escalating. Yes. We'll see how far the Saudis want to take it, but it seems like they've done most of the damage that they can do. Yes. I do want to note, uh, just like because we've we've been very critical here of the, the Saudi government, that our criticism is of the Saudi government and not Saudis themselves. I've I've no problem with people who live there, like you know, but the government is awful, and it yeah, it's fun to dunk on them because they were so terrible. So there you go. There you go. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. Yeah. Thank you once again for listening. Uh, we will do our quick beer review here. It's uh, Small Pony Barrel Works, which does sour beers based in Ottawa. Very good. Half remembered dream, a rose hibiscus. Uh, in, what's no, the technical no. thing? No, it just is, read it out. It is a golden sour, a blend of golden sours. Yes. Um, so what that means is they basically they make a couple different sour beers and different barrels, and they eventually mix them all. Some have different characteristics because yes. when, when you're working with barrels, very similar they, to the winemaking process. Here. They come out very differently. Um, so they blend them all together. Um, aged, aged, uh, aged in oak barrels. Aged in oak barrels. Aged in oak barrels uh, with rose hips and hibiscus. There you go. Uh, it's very tasty, refreshing for a sour, uh, which sours can, like, sometimes you, you drink them on a hot day and you're like, ooh, that was a bit weird. That's not but, true. Yeah, but, Etienne, you drink, like, stouts and you're like, oh, that was some good chocolate milk I just chugged on this 40 degree day. Yeah. Yeah, it's gross. It's like dude. having a nice coffee. Yeah, that's, ugh. It's not like. You don't even drink coffee. You don't even know what having a nice coffee is like. It's like a nice coffee. It's not like having a nice coffee. A nice, uh, one of those Tim Horton cappuccino thingies. Oh, those are sickly too. God damn. Okay, that, no more terrible takes from Etienne today. That will do it for us. Thank you once again for listening. You can follow us at ShortPantsPod on Twitter. And uh, we will record a new episode soon. Bye.